Well, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, we're looking at the last section of this chapter, verses 15 through 19. This morning, we'll continue to reflect upon our great God. We'll behold him and his attributes and his word. Whenever you open God's word, one of the first questions you should ask is, what is this teaching me about God? And we we want to jump to ourselves. We want to think, what does it have for me right now? And, and I think you don't want to ignore those questions, but that shouldn't be the first question. And the first thing you should be asking is, what does this teach us about God? Because that's always relevant. It's always important. There's always value in that question. Well, the church needs to uh, needs vision to survive but that needs clarification i think maybe even some of you are wincing at that statement where's he going with this i'm not referring to a catchy slogan that summarizes the church's objectives that we all have to memorize and recite together and think about and and figure out if we agree with it or not now many churches use vision statements to define their purpose and how they will reach the culture. So you might have heard things like Proverbs 29:18 quoted, without vision the people perish. So church planning strategists suggest coming up with a simple slogan that defines our goals and guides our mission that we can get everyone on board with understanding and and that's that's very critical. In fact, to ignore that critical step according to these strategists they warn that your church will likely collapse. So fear not. If you go to our website, you'll see both a vision and a mission statement. We've doubled down on this theory. Um, but honestly, outside of our new members class, I've, I rarely refer to it. I rarely talk about it. Um, I, I think the emphasis upon slogans is a bit tiresome. Um, to truncate your mission down to one catchphrase, I just think is minimalistic. It can be helpful. I'm not, uh, obviously, we, we have one and we've thought through it, and we're, in fact, kind of thinking about how to revise it right now. So that's partly why it's not emphasized as much. But the church is not a business, right? We're not trying to get noticed by using buzzword taglines. That being said, Revelation is all about vision. It's about a prolonged and multifaceted vision that was given to John to be written down and passed on to the church. Vision indeed sustains us through life's greatest trials. But the kind of vision that this is describing and the kind of vision, in fact, that Proverbs is talking about in Proverbs 29:18, is prophetic vision. Right? It's vision that comes from the Lord. It's, it's revelation of God and his attributes, who he is and what he calls us to. And the lasting impact of prophetic vision should be encouragement. And so visions of God's judgment have been interrupted with visions of God's glory throughout this book. Look at you know, Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and Revelation chapter 7 interrupts these sections that are describing judgment that's coming with this vision 
of God's greatness, of his throne room in heaven, of his glory. And so in our passage this morning, once again, we come to an intersection of both of these concepts. Right? The final judgment of God is depicted along with the accompanying praise that fills heaven and earth. And this is the third woe that was warned about in chapter 8, verse 13. At the end of chapter 8, it said, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we've already seen the first woe and the second woe. And at the very end of uh, the passage we looked at, Last week, verse 14 said, the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And since it's already been defined in chapter 8, verse 13, as the last trumpet, we know that as this seventh trumpet is being blown, this is the third woe. It's a devastating description right, of God's judgment. The fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets were marked out as especially devastating. And yet, what we'll see here is that the voices of heaven, along with the 24 elders, proclaim praise to God for that very judgment that this seventh trumpet depicts. So Revelation is continually pointing us to the benefits that we have in Christ, to the victory that he has secured. And there's this assumption that tribulation and sin will hinder our enjoyment of God's blessings. Right? That's, that's true. It's, be, it's not because God is reluctant to bless us, but because we are reluctant to trust and obey in the promises that he's given. And so all of this points to a vision of a future hope where sin and corruption are removed forever. But that future hope is meant to encourage us even now. It's not meant to, to say, hey, you're in despair and join the rest of us, right? We're all in despair and, um, you know, hopefully it's going to get better later on. No, I mean, this is meant to be an encouragement even now to give us endurance and strength to cause us to persevere through the trials and tribulations that you're either currently going through or will go through in this life because we all face them. It's meant to have an impact upon how we live today. And so in your outline that I provided, there's the summary statement, the benefits that will accompany Christ's future return sustain our present hope and mission. The benefits that will accompany Christ's future return sustain our present hope and mission. So before we read this passage of scripture, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, once again, we open your word and we are dependent upon you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe this truth. Lord, we know how critical these truths are. We know how important doctrine is and we know how relevant doctrine is to our everyday lives. And Lord, we need hope. We need encouragement. We need strength. So give it to us this morning through your word. Help us to see what we need to see. And Lord, help us to take that truth with us when we go to meditate upon it throughout the week and to encourage others with that same hope 
to point them to the one who is coming again, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Read with me. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Amen. This is God's holy word. So this passage opens with the vision of a Savior who reigns. That's your first point in the outline, a Savior who reigns, verses 15 through 17. The, the seventh trumpet is blown to signify that the Lord has returned to establish his kingdom on earth. Right? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. These words of praise that follow or that are, that are said there from loud voices in heaven and then the praise that comes from the 24 elders that follows, they're, they're combined here in the hallelujah chorus of Handel's Messiah. You... You could have that almost ringing in your ears as you read this passage. It's a beautiful illustration or imagining of what this might sound like in heaven. There is a hint here, right? As the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, there's a hint of the, uh, the renewal of all things, all wrongs being made right. The, the renewal of everything that has become corrupt. But the emphasis is actually a little bit different. Right? Um, we, we'll elaborate upon that concept, the renewal of all things, when we get to the end of the book, Revelation 21, talking about the new heavens and new earth. And like I said, I do think this points forward to that, but the emphasis, when, whenever the New Testament mentions the kingdom of God, it's, it's speaking about his exercise of dominion, not so much the domain in which he rules. The kingdom of God is God's reign, his rule, his sovereign rule. So the trumpet sounds and loud voices celebrate the reign of our Lord and Christ. And the 24 elders, they fall on their faces and they're worshiping God. They give thanks to him who is and who was. And that sounds quite familiar. We've heard it a few times already in chapter um, uh, 1, twice in verses 4 and 8, and then in chapter 4, verse 8. But there, you had this threefold description, right? Him who is and who was and who is to come. So notice the missing 
phrase is who is to come. The reference to his future coming is eliminated because that is what's taking place in this trumpet. The second coming is now in this vision. And so at the first coming, Jesus conquered sin. He bears its, uh, the penalty in his death on the cross, the penalty for sin for, for all who place their faith in him. And then the exaltation or dominion of Christ began at his resurrection, where he defeated death. So in his humiliation on the cross, he conquers sin. In his exaltation, he defeats and conquers death. But sin and death still remain. We still face them daily. We're still reminded of death, and we're constantly reminded of sin in our own lives. So this passage foresees Christ reigning without any opposition. The Roman emperor may demand that his people refer to him as the Almighty. This same phrase would have been familiar with the original audience because they heard the emperor demand the people to call him that. But here it's ascribed to God alone as the sovereign ruler, the one who's truly worthy to receive the title. So it's important that we recognize the significance of, of Christ's eternal reign, especially in, in light of the fact that, that we're not presently experiencing that in its fullness. We have not reached his, his return, and therefore sin and death have not been entirely eliminated. And so at, the, at his return, he establishes his kingdom on a renewed earth, and it's this world, right, that the Lord takes complete ownership of. He eradicates all remaining corruption. So just based on that timeline, there is no room for a future rebellion beyond Christ's return, as many dispensationalists teach. This idea that he'll set up, he'll establish his millennial reign, and then at the very end of that reign will be the final battle, the final rebellion. Now, that's, that, that's not described here. Right? Rather, upon Christ's return, all believers receive their glorified bodies so that they might reign with Christ for all eternity. Right? We, we worship our great king, and we begin to reign with him, with all corruption removed. In fact, our, our reign will be perfect. In the new heavens and new earth, we will experience the world in all of its righteous glory. As we live with our great prophet, Christ will continue to reveal more of himself and the glory of his kingdom. We'll continue to learn. We'll continue to grow in our understanding. And as we walk with our eternal high priest, we will never tire of learning more about the sacrifice that satisfied divine justice. So we will continue to worship him as our prophet, priest, and king as we reign and rule with him. These benefits have already become ours. Right? But as long as we remain in this body of flesh, in the midst of a corrupt world, we will long for the day when our faith becomes sight. What we look forward to now by faith will become sight and, and genuine true experience on the last day. 
So whenever we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that the reign of Christ might be more and more appreciated in this world. But that implies that those who are in opposition to his reign will be defeated, that they'll be wiped out and eliminated. And so it's a sobering thought as well. And spiritual warfare is not eternal. God's people will enter into their final rest when every last enemy is defeated. And so if you reject Christ and his reign over your life now, he will reject you for all eternity. And it won't be a battle. When you know Christ, however, and when you know him as your reigning savior, you also know him to be a judge who rewards. And that's what we see in verse 18, a judge who rewards. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So we be, let's take this break this verse down into three different sections itself because you begin here with the nations raging but the wrath of God coming. This is a reference to the last judgment when unbelievers are punished. They will stand before the Lord and receive the just penalty for their sins. And yet in the very next section the of the verse you have believers being described as servants prophets and saints those who fear your name and what are they receiving they're receiving reward they'll be rewarded for their good works and those those servants who fear his name will be rewarded and both small and great will be rewarded as psalm 115 teaches so you have the judgment of unbelievers you have the reward for believers and then it comes back to judgment and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. It returns to the nations who raged and destroyed the earth, now receiving God's wrath. This truth is the great equalizer, right? One reason that we can endure suffering now is the knowledge that every wrong will be made right at the great judgment. We, right now, we might feel like the perpetual underdog, Christians living in California are intimately aware of being outnumbered in almost every sphere of society. We're familiar with that. It's understandable to have a sense, even, in that situation, that the one with all the power is not God, but it's his enemy. But that will not be the case on the day of judgment. All opposition will be wiped out. Not one square inch of this world let alone entire states, will remain opposed to God's purposes. And so believers long for complete justice to be served. But there is something else that motivates us to anticipate this day, and it's the fact that our great judge will reward us for our loyal service. This doesn't mean that we have earned God's favor. It doesn't mean that we have merited salvation in any way. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But one of God's purposes in this final judgment very clearly is for rewarding. 
It is a time for rewarding his people. So the reward is not salvation, but commendation for good works done in response to the grace that we have received. And I've, I've talked about this before in, in Sunday school, but it, it's relevant, related here. Believers build upon the foundation that has been laid by Jesus Christ. Right? Works that are accomplished by the grace of God and survive the test of fire will be rewarded. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Think about the crown of righteousness that Paul was looking forward to receiving, to being rewarded or awarded on the last day. He talks about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, as an encouragement to Timothy, so that Timothy might be motivated in the same way. But I love how Augustine talks about this. He writes, the Lord, he says, will award me a crown. <clears throat> being a just judge. And so that's a paradox, right? He's a just judge and he's going to award me a crown knowing that I don't deserve that crown. But with the reward, you do nothing. With the work, you don't act alone. With the reward, you do nothing. And, and I, I'm not sure exactly where Augustine's going with that. The idea that we receive a crown, we don't know exactly what we do with that. We know at some point we, we cast our crowns at the, feet of the, at, the, at the feet of Christ on his throne. So you, you have that idea. Are we, you know, I don't, I don't get the impression that we're going to be walking around at, that there's some sort of royal... Quidditch cup that, you know, certain people will have the right crown to, to be a part of, you know, that, it, that you get nominated and promoted because you, you reach a certain level. I, I don't get that impression in scripture. So the idea is you, you are told you're going to be rewarded or awarded something on that last day, but you don't know exactly what you'll do with that reward. But here's what's very clear. With the work, you don't act alone. The work that is being awarded, the work that's being rewarded, is not something you do on your own. The crown simply comes to you from him, and the work, on the other hand, comes from you, but only with him helping. To Paul, fighting the good fight, completing the course, keeping the faith, he paid back good things. Again, this is all still Augustine. But for what good things? What were the good things that Paul was receiving that reward for? For ones he himself had given. For ones that Christ had given to him, in other words. Or wasn't it by his gift that you were able to fight the good fight? Then he puts this in there. He says, the only things of yours that we know were prepared for you by yourself are evil. So when God crowns your merits, he is not crowning anything but his own gifts. So when you think about being awarded, being rewarded by God, that is, is a reminder that you are receiving, once again, a gracious gift from God. Christ is now crowning his gifts to you. And it's a beautiful illustration of this, what will happen on that day. The, 
The verse places rewards, however, in the context of judgment. And again, it talks about the nations raging and receiving the wrath of God and the destruction of the destroyers of the earth. That surrounds this idea of rewarding your servants. It's it's, it's as if this re- reward is bracketed by judgment. And I think one of the points is that our one of our greatest rewards is the vindication of saints as their persecutors are condemned. And God will fully and finally answer the prayer of the martyrs back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, who are saying, How long, O Lord? How long will they continue to wreak havoc upon your church, upon your people? Well, God will answer that prayer fully and finally on this last day. In the meantime, all saints can join in their prayers, right? All of us can join with the prayers of the martyrs with confidence that our mission will indeed bear fruit. The reign of Christ is accompanied by the reward of his saints, which indicates that we worship a God who receives. That's your last point, verse 19, a God who receives. You will recall at the beginning of this chapter, in verses 1 and 2, we talked about the God's heavenly temple. John was told to measure the temple along with its altar and all the people who worship there. Now the chapter concludes with another reference to God's temple. In verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. So the time of persecution has now ended and the temple is opened. And this is great news for those who've been reconciled to God through Jesus. Because they'll be able to see the ark of the covenant with its attending glory. The concept is expanded later on where the temple has become synonymous with the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb in chapter 21. On the day of judgment, God will receive unhindered praise for his glory from all of his covenant children. That's what we long for, even as we worship him now. Even as we sing to him now, we long for the day when we'll be unhindered in that praise. So if the temple represents God's presence as I argued several weeks ago, then the Ark of the Covenant represents the white-hot center of God's holiness. None but the high priest ever had the privilege of seeing it, and he did only once a year. It was protected within the most holy place behind a thick curtain, and any unauthorized intruder into that place would immediately perish. Even transporting the Ark which involved elaborate instruction, even transporting it, right? They had to have a covering over it. They had to put poles between the rings that were underneath the the Ark of the Covenant. And certain people had to carry it. You couldn't just have anyone go and carry it. A certain portion of the Levitical tribe was assigned the task of carrying the Ark. And so do you remember what happened to Uzzah as he took hold of the Ark when the oxen stumbled as they were transporting it in a very lazy way, a very lazy fashion, they threw it on a cart and just were bringing it back from the Philistines who didn't want it anymore. And he, Uzzah reaches out and he takes hold of the ark because an oxen stumbles and the ark was about to fall. 
and he perishes on the spot. Had they been following God's clear direction from Numbers chapter 4, they would not have made such a foolish mistake. And David had no reason to be so furious over what happened. Right? He was told very clearly in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, that if anyone touches the ark in transporting it, they would die. So God was faithful to keep his word. But now, through this opened temple, the ark is visible. And it's not the same ark. Right? This is the ark in heaven. This is, a, this is a, a heavenly picture of what that physical reality represented. And the glory of God's holiness is now on full display. And just as we have seen several times, the description transitions to speak of lightning and thunder and an earthquake. And now heavy hail is added. It's, it's the same scene of God's judgment being described. And it's becoming more fierce. But even as God is receiving his servants to himself who are who are appreciating his holiness, he is now casting out those who do not belong. Those who have been marked by rebellion against God will perish at the sight of his glory. In fact, they'll want nothing to do with it. They'll be terrified. And so the question we conclude with is, are you prepared for that day? And do you know that you have access into the very presence of God? through his son, Jesus Christ. Because it will be terrifying for those who come before the throne of God having bypassed the grace that was held out to them in his son. And so I join Paul in his exhortation to the Corinthian church. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is our only hope of not perishing on the last day, is the only hope of not being cast into hell for all eternity. The vision of this passage reveals attributes of our Lord that, that encourage us, that build us up in the faith. The fact that we have a savior who reigns emboldens his citizens while warning anyone who remains in opposition. A judge who rewards reinforces our need to be aligned with him in his purposes. And a God who receives us into his glory will increase our confidence in his protective authority over us even now. Right, the benefits that will accompany Christ's future return sustain our present hope and mission. And so we take these truths with us. We meditate upon them. We discuss them with others. We discuss them with our family. We bring them back to the Lord and ask for him to continue to sustain us with this hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for these truths that, that upon that blasting of the seventh trumpet, we know all corruption will be removed from this world. And that we will finally come before you and, and see you as you are, unhindered by our own sin. 
able to worship you even as the angels and the saints in heaven are gathered around your throne, even now worshiping you ceaselessly, giving you praise. Lord, we will join with them. And yet we'll also be on this present earth renewed, being able to enjoy all of the physical blessings of this environment once again, apart from sin, as you intended. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We ask that you would encourage us by them and fill us with hope and give us confidence that these will be true of us. And Lord, if there is anyone who, who has not submitted themselves to Christ as Lord and Savior, and may you draw them to yourself, even now in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.